Hi, this is Dan Woods, founder of Early Adopter Research, and we're going to do a podcast today with Grant Ingersoll about search. The reason we're doing this podcast is that Donald Trump had brought up the issue of, is Google search fair? Citing a variety of specious sources, he asked the question, is the Google search ranking algorithm biased in some way? While I don't think he really has much of a point, it is an interesting thing to think about why is search the way it is and does it have to be that way? And so I reached out to Grant Ingersoll, who is a contributor to Solar, the co-founder of the Mahout Machine Learning Open Source Project, and also co-founder and CTO of LucidWorks to help sort this out. What we're gonna do is talk about does search have to be the way it is? How could it be different? And what are the implications of changing the way it works? This is interesting to me because earlier in my career, I worked at Money Magazine on a Money Magazine best cities calculator. Money Magazine had for years done a best city in the United States ranking. And what they had done is they'd taken many different variations uh, of uh, many different dimensions of a city, measured them, and then put them in a, a model with, that combined all these dimensions with various weights. What we did, and one of the early sites in Pathfinder is changed the best cities ranking system so that you could put your own weights in. You could decide whether art or food or culture or other things was most important to you. And this allowed people to get their own personal best city ranking. I think that that's essentially what's up for grabs here when we talk about what could happen with search. So first of all, I wanna start and talk to Grant about the nature of search in general. What is it really going on, Grant, you know, when you talk about tech search? What are the basic things and basic activities that happen? Yeah, Dan, I mean, I, th I think that's a great question. And, and by the way, thanks for having me on here. You know, I, when I think about uh, at what's going on in search, there's at least three levels that are usually at work in most consumer-based search engines. The, the first one is there's some core algorithms underneath the, the hood that take care of parsing text, acquiring content, getting it into the engine, kind of doing all the pre-processing and building of uh, data structures that make it easy for one to look up keywords at runtime. So when you go to Google and you type in, you know, hey, I'm looking for news on Donald Trump or on whatever it is you're, you're looking for, uh, recipes or, or the concerts in town. There's this very basic level of matching that says, you know, let me go find content that has those exact words in them or words like those or at least the concepts. So this is what is, is known as crawling the web to kind of read all the documents and then creating inverted indexes which show which word is in each of those documents so that you can quickly look up, if somebody enters words, which documents are relevant. Exactly, and then typically built on top of that or built into that is some notion of popularity. You know, some of your listeners might be familiar with, uh, like what you and I were talking about earlier, the terms like page rank or, or click uh, stream examples. You know, basically one of the, the things I always like to say about Google is, you know, one of the, you know, yes, Google has a lot of really smart people, but the reality is, is us as, as consumers of Google do the large majority of work. You know, we, we quote unquote vote with our, our fingers, if you will. We tell Google 
what's important. And that's not just us individually, but all of us together, you know, say, hey, I like this document, not that document. I like this site, not that site. And so how do, how do we actually tell them that? How do they learn that from us? Yeah, there's, there's, uh, we usually in the search business talk a lot about both implicit and explicit examples or signals. Uh, uh, an explicit example is, hey, you, you actually bought something or you clicked on something. Uh, but there's also implicit examples like, hey, how much time did you spend on page? How long did it take you to decide uh, what document to click on? Did you scroll? Did you do, uh, did you, you walk away from the machine or, or go to a different page, open a new tab? Did you rewrite your query because you weren't happy with the results? And so there's a lot of uh, things that people on the web and in the enterprise have worked out over the years that are good indicators of whether somebody likes something or not. And then there's often this notion of even if you say explicitly you don't like something, the reality is it's still often a pretty good hint that you do like at least things like that because there's this whole negative space, if you will, right, Dan, of, of you know, I may say I really like Beethoven and I hate Tchaikovsky, but the reality is that really means I like classical music because I didn't even bother to rate Metallica. Right. So there's this whole negative space of things you didn't even bother with that come into play in these scenarios. Now, then, what are the other dimensions, though, of when once you have a lot of this evidence, then you do have an algorithm that determines which of those dimensions is most important? Like, you know, what are the, the choices you must make in determining how to rank results? Yeah, and that's where, you know, there is a, a, a little bit of kernel of truth to the, you know, hey, people are at the end of the day making these choices, right? Because ultimately people are choosing the algorithms they want to apply. And most search engines do have some notion of editorialization or at least nudging of the results or at least providing feedback to the engine that says, hey, this is no, this is right, or no, that is right. And so, you know, especially in the earlier days of search engines, a lot of those uh, weights, just like in your, your best cities example, those weights were picked by hand. You know, it was up to me as a search engineer to say, oh, hey, I think the title of an article is more important than, you know, the last paragraph of an article, or I care more about user reviews than I do about, uh, you know, the purchase price or something along those lines, right? So, and so you also mentioned dimensions of like freshness or relevance or other dimensions. What other yeah. dimensions are involved? Like, let's imagine that someday we might be able to choose these for ourselves. What would be on that menu? Yeah, boy, there's, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, th I think you hit on a, a number of key things, especially when you're talking news. Obviously, freshness uh, uh, is, is a huge factor there. There's, you know, also the notion of authority of that site, the popularity of that site. Uh, you know, is it a, is it a, a newspaper of record, if you will, uh, from the old days? Uh, there's, you know, some personal choices that go into those things. Whereas like, you know, Google learns your behavior over time. For me as a techie, I, when I go into Google, it knows that I tend to think of, want things that are more technically oriented than, than perhaps equivalent terms that aren't technically oriented. Uh, so there's a lot of biases and levers that we can build into a system to help, 
you know, essentially narrow down all of that data, right? So, so yeah, I think you hit on a number of good ones there. Uh, some things too, just even like how long is the content? Like I, most people, I think, you know, all else being equal, I'd rather read something that's shorter than longer if I got the same information out of it, right? So there's, there's a lot of those things. And then, of course, there's what are the editorial goals of the company or the newspaper itself? You know, there's, there's as much as to what you don't show as there is to what you do show, right? So now, one of the things that's interesting is that we all know that when we go on Google or any public search engine, we get a much better exert, uh, experience than we get when we go into our company's search engine. We usually find it much harder to find stuff internally in a company than we do on the web. Now, what, what are the differences that make public web search much, much better than what we get in uh, the, uh, the, the private web search? I remember uh, several years ago, I wrote an article about how many people were disappointed in the Google search appliance because when they plugged it into their corporate data, they found that they didn't get nearly as good choices and good rankings as they did in public. Why is that? Well, I mean, <laughs> all kidding aside, that's, that's because they haven't chosen my product, but uh, <laughs> just kidding, of course. But, uh, you know, I mean, the, the biggest factor, right, is you have billions of people on Google and it's all, you know, a lot of the content is public. And so you have this, you know, just massive every day, every hour voting scheme that is going on, whereby people are clicking and, and voicing their opinion on what matters and what doesn't. Whereas in the enterprise uh, you typically, you kind of see two things. I often think that one of the main reasons why not just enterprise search, but enterprise applications fail is because they fail to account for what users do, right? And what users do at work is very, in many ways, different from what they do at home because the work systems force them into certain paradigms. Uh, things like clicks aren't necessarily at the same volume, but we often we often express our opinions or interests in different forms, forms that are harder to capture. So things like email or Slack or Microsoft Teams or any of these, you know, uh, chat systems that we so often use at work. You know, there we're often sharing content and all of that. And, and older search systems like Google Search Appliance don't necessarily have access to them. So they can't register the votes in the same way that one does up on the internet. Got it. Now, also, there's a, the, the dimension of personalization uh, that is much more prevalent in the public web search than it is in internal searches. What happens and what is the effect of personalization on search? Yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, you're actually seeing more and more interest of that in the enterprise, namely because I think consumers are, you know, they're also employees. And so when they show up at work, they say, well, why can't I have it like I have it up on, you know, in my home life on the web and Google and Yelp and Facebook and Amazon. And, and the real answer is they ought to be able to do that, right? It's just that the way you personalize at work is different. It's it's often based off of what role you have, what your function is within the company. It's often takes a bit longer to learn what actually matters to you because there's not as much evidence and there's probably not as many people who have similar functions to you, right? Only in really large corporations do you really see the, you know, the effect of the masses, if you will, at that level. But there are other ways, and there's a lot of movement around uh, machine learning and AI 
to, to bring more personal capabilities into the enterprise. So something I, you know, like I work on uh, quite a lot in terms of how do we, how do we capture those signals in the enterprise and bring that into an application? Well, and that's what we said earlier uh, when we were speaking is you mentioned that, you know, the page rank uh, algorithm was one of the foundations of Google, but now that's really a proxy. The page rank algorithm isn't really the dominant force inside Google search engine. There are just dozens of different AI and advanced machine learning techniques that are really examining all the content and trying to discern the concerns. And compared to the internal search, the public search has, what would you say, a hundred, a thousand times more density in terms of the, the kind of uh, advanced AI analytics machine learning that's applied? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just different types, right? There's, there's different approaches to it. That there's different approaches to how you do things on, on the, the web or for consumers than you do in the enterprise. In the enterprise, you're often having to do things in more unsupervised ways. You don't have as many examples to learn from. There still often is, you know, hundreds if not thousands of features that one could at least attempt to leverage and learn from. Uh, oftentimes you don't need at all of that, but you know, it's at least something you can experiment. One of the cool things with the AI, you know, the state of AI these days or machine learning as it is, is, is the systems are getting so much better at taking in lots of features and distilling that into an algorithm that can adapt very quickly to new and changing capabilities. Right? Could you explain to everybody listening uh, what you mean by features? That's a technical AI term. Yeah, I mean, a feature is, you know, an, an attribute of the data, of the content. It's, it's, you know, for instance, the price of something or whether it's in stock or not, whether, you know, what color it is, the uh, keywords in the description, the title of it. Uh, it might be also, you know, how many people bought that thing in the past or read that article in the past. All of those are features that can then be, learned by a machine. I mean, it's what we often do as humans. It's just the computer can do it so much faster and so much more reliably and repeatably. And of course, at scale, you know, we as humans can usually track, you know, five, six, maybe 10 different features at a time and, and kind of synthesize them and say, ah, oh, I see a pattern there. Whereas the machine, of course, given enough examples of each of those features can, can do that at just massive scales. And that's really what's transforming the search industry these days and it's also where kind of tying it back to the you know the original question around trump is where there's often it's it's ripe for manipulation by uh third-party sources you know we've all seen like what's going on with the russia stuff or there's at least a lot of questions there we all know and are aware of all the the bots and and all of the the battle kind of going on around bots and spam and all of that kind of stuff there's, there's essentially a constant battle over what features are chosen and not chosen. And if you think about it, as soon as you make that choice of what feature it is, it then becomes a target for somebody to manipulate it in, in an adversarial way. So it's kind of really a feedback loop that's constantly changing. But I think now let's get to, to, to one of the bigger picture questions. And that is, does it really have to be this way? Does, work, does the search really need to be a black box controlled by a company like Google? One of the responses that Google made when uh, Trump made his accusations was that we really work hard on making this a great black box that works really well to provide relevant content. What they didn't say is, you know what, 
it's really interesting. Maybe we should provide you not only to allow personalization by your behavior, but to allow explicit personalization by you being able to make some choices and move some knobs and dials about the kind of search results you want. Yeah. How, well, how, how would things be different if that were possible? Yeah, no, that's, and, that's and, really and first, interesting. And first of all, is that possible? Well, you know, I mean, it's software. I always, you know, most people I say anything's possible in software, given enough time and, and money. Uh, would consumers actually even want it or care about it? You know, I think people who are in the know and understand the, the things that can go bad with a system like that, you know, or not having those capabilities would, would, would cheer it on, right? You know, your privacy experts, your security experts uh, would be interested uh, would the average everyday would they want it or would they not want it? I think they would want to, they would want more inside. They would want the white box, right? Uh, would the everyday consumer who just, you know, is, is swimming in a sea of information and just wants to get the stupid answer they're after want it? Probably not. You know, I mean, you know, if you're looking up the, a recipe for barbecue chicken or whatever it is, like, do you really need to know why the algorithm chose the recipe, you, you either like the recipes that come back or not. And if you don't like them, you, you probably, it's just as easy for you to, to retarget your queries. And it, sh no. it should, be, should be mentioned real quick too, Dan. I mean, there are other search engines besides Google. Nobody's forcing anybody to use Google. You know, Microsoft has a perfectly viable search engine, Bing. Uh, for those who really like privacy, DuckDuckGo has made its whole... Uh, living these days around being the search engine that doesn't put you in the bubble, right? That doesn't personalize towards you. That tries to be more pro, uh, uh, to be more clear about what's going on. In fact, some chunk of DuckDuckGo's code base is actually open source, right? I'm not an advocate for them. I do use them a lot. One of the things I do as a search user is I actually switch between search engines just to see how and why they're biasing results in different ways towards me. So well, you, we mentioned two things so far uh, that could be different. One thing could be different is that uh, you could have a, a white box that showed you how the algorithm is working. And we get that in some of the recommendation engines, you know, on Netflix or uh, other uh, places where it says, because you watched this, we're now recommending these movies. Uh, or sometimes in the email, uh, 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 you know, recommendations, you get the similar explanations of why the recommendation happened. And the other thing that we, you mentioned was that we could also be able to set our own parameters uh, and, and, and change our weights as in the Money Magazine Best Cities examples. Are there other things that could be different? What, what else could be different in terms of, you know, the way that search could work? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to search engines, you know, need to, and, and we spend a lot of time on trying to understand users' intent. And, you know, unfortunately, language has a lot of, uh, human language has a lot of amb ambiguity in it. And so, uh, you know, what you're starting to see, I think, with tools like Siri and Google Home and, and Alexa and that is there's this movement towards, you know, this natural language dialogue. And I think we all kind of at least some see some part of the future where we can actually have a conversation with the bot and the bot is then able to ask clarifying questions. And, in, and by asking those clarifying questions, it's able to suss out your meaning better, right? So, you know, if I say, hey, Dan, where's the bank? 
you know, you might then say, well, hey, are you looking for a financial bank or, you know what, we're by the, we're on a river and, and you're asking for, you know, where's the, the bank that we can land our canoe on, right? So context and, and all of those kinds of things matter. And so search engines and, and these bots are, are always looking for ways that we can help users better express their information need, the thing they're looking for. And I think then the, the sliders and features that you're getting at will actually be context sensitive, right? When I'm, when I'm doing research for in-depth expose that I'm writing on, you know, some, some really deep, hard, hard hitting issue, right? I want to be able to go very deep on a topic and I want my search engine to, to unearth all the stuff. Right. Whereas if I just want to know where is a good restaurant to eat at tonight, like, you know what, I'm probably not going to matter. Right. And so I constantly think about like, how do we slide that dial? And I think to your point then is you want to be able to each way, each position along that dial, be able to say, well, here's the things I care about knowing is going into this algorithm such that I can, I can better judge whether I'm being manipulated or not. So right. another, so another dimension would be like specificity of search, you know, or exactly or, or like, I want, like what's the range of answers I want, you know, I want, right. I want a narrow range or do I want a wide range. And, and we as humans do this all the time, right? I, I travel a lot. I always, uh, people get sick of hearing me talk about my concierge example, but I always, I always like to think about, you know, when you go into a really good hotel that has a good concierge, you say to the the say to that person you say hey when does the shuttle leave for the the airport well you know 5 p.m be here 20 minutes beforehand it's a it's a quick answer right when you say hey what are some good restaurants you know they give me back the 10 blue links they give me back a list of things oh hey do you want do you want steak no do you want vegan do you want mexican do you want you know whatever it is you're in the mood for and then even good concierge beyond that actually go the extra mile and, and do some of the work for you. And I think this is really where the future of this stuff is going of having this stuff help you along the lines more such that a good concierge, for instance, might say, Hey, you want me to fill out the loyalty program for you? I see, you know, Mr. Woods that you check in here every Friday, you should get your points, you know? And I think that's where we want, we want things to take away the drudgery, but we also don't want to be fooled by them. Right. So why wouldn't Google do this? I mean, what are the implications of opening up the black box? And I don't think Google is planning on doing this anytime soon. Why do you think that it's in their interest not to open it up? Uh, wow, yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, I mean, what, what does opening up mean? They, they give away all the code? Do they give away all the data? Do they give away both? Do they... Uh, give people access to all the the inputs that they have, right? Um, do they allow people to submit their own content directly as to what news is? Uh, you know, there's a lot of factors there, of course. Uh, but let's say, you know, it, 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 they said, let's give up the, the levers into the algorithm. It's still on Google then to combine those into an engine that then transforms those those levers into results um, you know and that can have I, I can see a lot of performance issues with that that just simply you know doing that across a billion users would be really hard to scale and customize just because of you know limitations on in the hardware that you have 
Uh, that being aside, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, right, you know, Google is at, at least at a, a good chunk of its level of an advertising company. Their job is to make money. Their job, they, they need to match ads to it. Their distinct differentiator as a business is the way that they are able to do those kinds of things, right? So by opening all of that stuff up, you know, you'd, they'd obviously be inviting other competition uh, that, you know, would, would make it so that they can compete as well. And manipulation um, as well. Yeah, but they're, you know, they do give you tools that you can, you know, guide them in. One of the simplest, simplest ways that you can, uh, you know, quote unquote, de-bias Google is just simply by opening up uh, your search window in a, in a private browser, in, in like incognito mode or, or, you know, use a VPN or a Tor client or one of those, those are maybe a bit more advanced, but you know, at least open up in safe mode or, or, you know, private browsing mode and, and turn off your cookies, delete your cookies, those kinds of things. Uh, and, and you'll notice distinctly different results from Google. So I see that's an experiment that everybody can do is do with the same search, one in an incognito mode browser and one in the, uh, the normal browser and see what the differences are. Yeah, or the next time you're at like a Starbucks on a public Wi-Fi or, or if you use a VPN, right? Uh, notice the results you get back from the VPN, right? Or, or like I said, empty your cookies. Those are all easy, empty your cache. Those are all relatively easy things. Uh, a, a quick uh, a pun intended Google will, will lead you to how to do those things, right? Right, exactly. Now. Well, one of the things that I wrote about a little while ago was how uh, the rise of the Amazon Alexa, Siri, and these other bot-oriented uh, um, search engines are really going to kill SEO as a practice. Now, SEO has already been killed as a, a form of trickery because search engine optimization uh, uh, a while ago, many of the practitioners said, you know what, we have to give up on and doing any tricks, the only thing we can do is great, create great content and you know, have people pay attention to it. That's what's gonna get us a higher ranking. It's no longer about doing you know, uh, meta tagging or, or, or all the other things that they used to do. Um, but in, in this new world, all of these things have a knowledge graph behind them. Siri, Alexa, they are querying a, a graph uh, that then allows them to pick one answer to give you. And now you're not seeing that list of answers anymore. And so, you know, uh, th this is a big change, you know, in the way search is going to be interacting with people. Now, what are the other big issues in play right now that are, you know, that are, that are, that people who are in the search business like you uh, are trying to struggle with both in the public realm and in the, you know, internal and corporate realm? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great list. I mean, obviously the knowledge graph and this, this virtual assistant, I mean, we just talked a little bit about, you know, scaling answers from, you know, the short, quick fact-based answers that a, a thing like, you know, Siri and, and Alexa and that are highly optimized to, um, you know, and, and, and knowing what is an authoritative source for something that becomes even more challenging when you have lots of different, you know, versions of truth or at least versions of evidence 
available to you. So I think we're always constantly on the uh, lookout for ways to distinguish what is the best way of answering it. You know, even in the enterprise, we often struggle with, you know, there's, there's 27 different versions of a document. One's in your SharePoint, one's on your file system. You know, 10 of them are in your email. Which one's the right one? Right. You know, they might all match, but which one's the one that we actually all decided as humans is the one that that matters at this point in time. Those are really challenging questions. I don't I don't know that there's ever, you know, a single one answer. So, so that is a, that that notion of relevance and importance is a is a never ending battle. Uh, I don't think SEO uh, or similar techniques ever go away. The, the, the landscape just changes, if you will. Uh, these days, there's what's really interesting in this space is there's a lot of new content types that are being unlocked. The simplest uh, one to relate to listeners is images. You know, the, the things like image search, that wasn't even really doable in any practical way five, ten years ago. And these days, you're seeing real production systems that where you can say here's an image go find me other images like this and and same with audio same with speech to text so we're we're i think just on the cusp of a lot of really interesting things coming together around that that uh you know the next generation of users or the the near generation of users are going to going to really like what they start to see coming out of out of the research fields and all of that. And I think, uh, you know, that's going to help unlock a lot of productivity for people. And that's, that's frankly, what gets me excited in the in the search space these days and in the machine. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Because your your company LucidWorks has a platform, the fusion platform, that essentially will reach out to large corpuses of data and help you organize them into you know, smaller, you know, uh, collections of data that might be relevant to a business process. And then when you're actually executing that business process, you can use search or a knowledge graph or some other way to reach into them and get what's relevant. It seems that to me that there's an analogy between that sort of uh, organizing of information into, you know, smaller collections that are relevant to a business process and the same kind of work we do in the business intelligence world where you have, ETL, you know, first to create a, an organized corpus of data, but then you have like last mile ETL to create a purpose built set of data for a dashboard. It seems to me that, you know, search is changing so that you're, you're creating these sort of smaller collections that can be then, you know, delivered uh, to uh, a business process. I mean, is, is that one of the things that LucidWorks is, is, is really all about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good description. I mean, there are a lot of worlds colliding right now in the in the data space, if you will. And I and you know, obviously, I'm biased because I work for a search company. But I think the core capabilities of a search engine help you reframe how you think about data in really interesting ways. And and what I mean by that is, you know, not to get too technical, but you know, if if you've ever done SQL or if you ever played around in an Excel spreadsheet, there's traditionally been this model that you have rows and columns of data. And then, you know, you, you filter some amount of that data and then you say, hey, I want to sort by time or by revenue or some column, right? And, and it's essentially kind of this linear 
uh, monolithic approach, if you will, right, of, you know, hey, sort by this column. No, go sort by that column. Search engine kind of turns that on its head and it says, let me mash together all these features. Again, tying it back to that feature thing that we were talking about earlier. And, and let me rank those things according to all of these different weights that I've learned over time uh, that I've factored in from the data itself as well as user behavior and whatever editorial rules and business processes I have. And so once you start to reframe how you think about data that way, instead of just this monolithic sort view to this, this view that says, hey, I wanna know what's important in it, you can just transform the way you think about applications then, right? Because it no longer becomes about you know, uh, uh, showing a user, here's all the data that matches. It's like, no, here's the data at the top that matters to you. Now go take action on it. And then after you, and then you can attach this into workflows and build out applications. So at Looseworks, what we really try to do is, is really bring together those two worlds of helping you better understand what's in your data, but then enable you to take action with it through, you know, your, your business process, your workflows, your, your configuration management, the hygiene of, of running a business that if you will. What's and, the, what's a good before and after example of like an application working according to the row and table sort paradigm and a, and a, and a uh, an application working according to the, uh, you know, uh, uh, ranking of features and what's important paradigm. Yeah, I would actually take it to another level. And, and what we often see is actually multiple applications working in concert together. So a classic example that we often see on the customer's consumer facing side is, let's say we power, you know, Acme companies retail search such that you when you go in and search for widgets, we're saying, hey, you know, buy widget A, buy widget B, buy widget C. And we've done all that fancy ranking and machine learning that learns off of what users have bought and purchased, right? So we have all of this click data and this purchase behavior data, right? Well, guess what? Like that data that makes for better search is of course also what makes for better recommendations, personalization, query intent, query understanding. Most importantly, it's also your analytics data. So then the second application that very naturally falls out of the fact that you built a good, smart e-commerce retail solution is a customer 360 application that then says, here's how your users are behaving as it relates to how they engage on your site. So traditionally in most companies, this is two separate things, right? Marketing keeps all the data up in, you know, Omniture or Google Analytics or whatever, and then searches over here and recommendations over, over there. And for us, that's all the same because it's all the same data, right? And so then I can, of course, in the customer 360 app, put a dashboard on top of it. One of the, but one of the things that we do and that search really powers is we can drill in to the why behind the dashboards. So it's one thing to look at a dashboard and say, oh, sales are up by 3% this quarter, right? It's a whole nother thing to then be able to click through that dashboard, run a search and say, here's the dominating features and factors as to why that, why sales are up. And then, or if it's a problem, be able to take that next level of action to say, oh, hey, I better call Dan because Dan's in charge of merchandising on this particular area of the business and Dan's numbers are way down or way up. I better congratulate Dan, right? And so it's, 
I see. So like a traditional dashboard might be able to say, allow you to say, look, let me see all the inputs. And then you could see them and decide which was more important. You're saying that with this uh, feature-based approach, you can actually see and sort which one was most important. And, and not only that, but then take the next logical step. So most traditional BI tools stop at the dashboard, right? And then it's, on, it's upon the human to then decide how to interpret it. Oh, there's the jagged line on that line chart. What should I do about that? Oh, I think that's Dan's responsibility. That's Grant's responsibility. Let me call him up. Whereas if you actually start to think about how do we attach workflows and business process to that and show people what's important, how to take that next best action, how to, how to decide, you know, help them decide at the end of the day and then follow through on it, you can actually build a much richer experience. And then, of course, that can feed back into the beginning of the cycle again and feed back into the search engine, for instance, or into the buying patterns, the supply chain, all of that kind of stuff. So it sounds and, like it sounds like a lot more like that you're creating a knowledge graph that then can be influenced by behavior, can be influenced by you know people's reaction to it and start exactly. optimizing and optimizing both in the, the first answer it might give, but also optimizing in the transparency of the explanation and the causality involved exactly in and that's the beauty of search engine and by putting all that B, traditional bi data that usually lives in a bi warehouse into a search engine you also give easy access to it to all your users because all your users know, already know how to search right so if you wanted to say hey you know what are the sales for 2018 just go pop that into the search engine and ask as opposed to having to go you know talk to the it team to to run a BI report, et cetera. Right? Or remember the right dashboard. Or, or remember the right dashboard, exactly. Okay. Well, you know, Grant, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Um, is there anything you'd like to say in wrapping up? Because I think we covered a lot of interesting ground. No, yeah, I think uh, this, is, this is great. I love talking this stuff, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners, Dan. Thank you. Good. Well, I hope we can talk again sometime soon. Thank you very much.